This is CNN Breaking News. Breaking news. We begin with breaking news, of course. This is an ABC News special report. And we have a decision just breaking from the Supreme Court. On the U.S. Supreme Court. Hey, we're coming on the air with breaking news. The Supreme Court has just rejected a challenge. To Good the morning. Court. We're coming on the air with breaking news from the Supreme Court at this hour. The In judge. a six to three decision. It's a five to four opinion. The court struck down New York's law, which... There are three fierce dissents. The majority of the court ruling... This is considered a major blow to the federal government's power. Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue that takes a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Naomi Soto, your co-host and health policy professional based in California. And I'm Brendan Steidel, your co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. Our goal for Polylog is to look at the policy and the framing of various instances of political journalism. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Monday, September 12th, 2022. And we're back with our first episode of our new season of Polylog. This is Polylog 2.0, Season 1, How the Media Covers the United States Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is one of our three branches of government, but for completely confusing reasons, it is covered by national media organizations in an entirely different ways than the legislative or executive branches of government are covered. Yeah, and there is so much to talk about. Decisions, the justices, what we, the American people, understand and know about the court, and what we've learned over these many months of studying the court so that we felt like we could come to you with what, some semblance of knowledge and background. That's right. We can't wait to examine it all with you all. So let's jump to it. Episode one, the media landscape, what's happening, more importantly, what's not happening when we see news organizations cover the Supreme Court. So a little uh, housekeeping for our new season, the way we decided to kind of look at these various segments around this theme are to kind of discuss the pillars within each episode and then have discussions for each of those pillars and how they're helping us understand the issue or what might be at play here. Exactly. And each pillar is kind of like one one big point about how the Supreme Court is covered. So one of the first things we want to talk about is how mainstream media hits the big moments. So what are the stories, the key stories about the Supreme Court that break through the noise of political coverage? There are really just a few different categories of stories that make the big headlines. In fact, I think there's just about four of them. There's when a Supreme Court justice dies or retires and a seat is opened up. There's when a president nominates someone to fill a vacancy. There's when the nominee sits for confirmation and then is ultimately confirmed or rejected. And finally, of course, there's when a big earth-shaking case happens. Now, the first three types surrounding vacancies on the Supreme Court, they're not guaranteed to happen all that often. And this was crazy when I learned this, that after Justice Breyer, who just recently retired, but after he was originally confirmed back in 1994... 
by, by a vote of 87 ayes, 9 nays, the nomination is confirmed. With President Bill Clinton. Yeah, there wasn't a single vacancy on the court for 11 years. That was 11 years with none of those first three types of stories. So for some periods, all we get is news of cases. And it's important to note that that's mostly just newsy cases. The Supreme Court hears about 70 to 80 merits cases. These are the big ones where they have oral arguments. 70 to 80 of them every year. And most of that news just isn't making it to our consciousness. I mean, if you asked me to name 70 that happened in the last year, I'd be hard-pressed to name more than three, maybe, at most, even after all the studying. <laughs> it's crazy. But so <laughs> that number that I just came up with, three, it shouldn't be that surprising. So a study of major newspapers in the United States found that the average paper covers eight decisions a year, with many only covering one to two decisions. And if you look at television news, a study that reviewed reporting on NBC News across an entire year found that if you put all that coverage of the Supreme Court together, like you put it on one VHS tape, I don't know why. That's I just so keep, cute. You said I, VHS. I keep thinking of it as like a VHS tape. Like you, you're like, oh crap, I got to record it. Supreme Court, you're just like all year long. And it would only cover one hour of programming. You'd be able to use that same tape and you'd still have an hour left. Yeah, we're going to put Melrose Place on. There you go. Right, exactly. (laughs) So how does that compare with coverage of the executive and legislative branches? Well, now the Supreme Court is a co-equal branch of a three-branch federal government, supposedly. So it could make up a third of the federal coverage on NBC News, right? But what's the real number? Well, on broadcast news, coverage of the Supreme Court took up just 6% of federal coverage. That's five times less than by rights it should take up. That's absolutely crazy. Yeah. And not surprising, but just crazy to see the number. Yeah, exactly. Now, one thing that I found kind of interesting was that I assumed all the coverage was about the results of the decisions, like when they handed down decisions in these cases, like we just saw with the Dobbs decision. Opinion. There is a majority written by Justice Alito that says Roe versus Wade is history. That landmark 1973 ruling that said a woman had a constitutional right to abortion now goes back to the states who can set their own policies. On- but actually, because they're only talking about the big cases, they know they're coming pretty early. So half of the stories that are covered on TV about these cases are about the cases before the decision is handed down, when the justices, like, take up the case or when the case is is actually argued in oral arguments. Now, in big newspapers like the New York Times, the majority of front page stories on a case actually take place before the decision because there's just there's more in the newspaper that's covered. And the newspapers have more space. More space, totally. So... It's also we're talking about the types of cases that break through. So a study, there's a study out there, and it took a look at what cases made it to the front page of the New York Times. And they looked across like 50 years of cover stories in the New York Times. And they found that cases that deal with civil rights, criminal rights, and privacy are more likely to be covered. And that you can kind of have a sense of whether a case is going to be covered 
by how the decision comes down. If there are multiple justices dissenting in that case, it's more likely to be covered. If the court calls a law unconstitutional, well, yeah, you got to cover that, right? And if the court alters a precedent, that is, if the court rules against a previous Supreme Court ruling, particularly one that was really important. And it shouldn't be surprising that the latest decision to rock our political world, the Dobbs decision, checked all of those boxes except for the calling a law unconstitutional one. It dealt with the right to privacy, there were multiple justices dissenting, and the court altered its own precedent. Now, right now, speaking of that Dobbs decision, it seems like we're awash in coverage of the Supreme Court, so all these complaints or just... <laughs> Seem like they, they don't yeah, make they, sense. Yeah, right? Like, But it's worth remembering that the glut of news is for three main reasons. First, we just had the cycle of a retirement, nomination, and confirmation. As we noted, that doesn't happen that often. Number two, it's summer, and the court's term, which begins in October, effectively ends in June, when the most complicated cases are handed down. And number three, the Dobbs decision just shook our political world, overturning Roe, which previously had granted women and pregnant people the constitutional right to an abortion before fetus viability. The court now has stripped this right that had been in place for the last 50 years. We've had a lot of news recently, not just about the Dobbs decision itself, but its impacts. And just as this glut of coverage about the Supreme Court is not the norm. All those stories about the impact of the decision, that's not the norm either. There are so many stories about the Supreme Court that failed to cover the impacts as extensively. You know, why does a case have to overturn a 50-year precedent for us to see big stories about the impacts in our newspapers, on TV, you know, mm -hmm. in our news media. Why can't we see deep impact level reporting on, for example, the people impacted by the court's recent decision against regulating coal-fired power stations? Or the religious groups, why don't we hear from them and have stories about how they feel empowered after the court upheld a high school football coach's right to lead a prayer at the 50-yard line? Or what about how tribes are reacting to the possibility that states can actually prosecute non-natives for crimes that occur on tribal land? Nobody can follow every story, but interest groups shouldn't be the only ones with knowledge of these impacts, because the court's decisions, as we're going to talk about here exhaustively, impact all of us. Yeah, it's, just, it's really clear that there's so much that's missing. And like, yeah. it almost feels like a copy and paste situation <laughs> so often of, of the coverage we are seeing. Yeah. And it's when you dig into the actual numbers here and you realize how small the coverage is of the court, there are so many questions that swirl around. Like, why is that? What What is this historically the case? Like, what can we do to change that? And also, how how is it so different? Why is it so different? You know? And it seems like those should be norms of the news organizations, mm -hmm. right? Like their standards or, yes. you know, like intense curiosity and, and rigor is set by the news organization. Yes. But that's not the case if you're willing or able to cover the legislative and executive branch way more extensively than you ever do for 
the Supreme Court. Yeah, I mean, you and I, of course, Naomi, took quite a lot of classes on journalism. (laughs) Right. And so one of the things that I remember one of my journalism teachers saying, and I think think it was the one who was a top editor at Reuters, but I think one of the first things said was, and it's been said before by a lot, the news is not a reflection of the world, right? The world is, there's a lot going on in the world. Most of it isn't covered in our news. The news surfaces big important things and also weird outlandish things that tend to pique people's interest. So, I don't know, I think that's kind of why news organizations editorially don't say, we must have equal coverage of the Supreme Court with our other two branches. Now, we're or, not even shooting for equal. Just right. Like, <laughs> you know, but it's it seems respectable like... Respectable would be nice. <laughs> yeah, it just, it, but it seems like as a result of the fact that news in truth isn't a reflection of the world, why should coverage be a reflection of this three-branch system? If you're covering it a little bit, maybe that's fine, right? I'm sure there are other areas of our world and economy that are covered less than their, you know, due impact. Sure. But that's not what we're talking about yeah, today. Yeah, that's we're talking season. about the Supreme Court. We're not talking about that right now. <laughs> And, of course, our news media, particularly the mainstream media, likes to talk about their civic role, right? Their, their em- Civic media. Yes, and that they are there to inform the public, and that is their mission, and that democracy dies in darkness, right? <laughs> it dies. <laughs> You're such a little Marty Baradrill. <laughs> <laughs> so this question around like what would we see if we didn't have vacancies yeah you know we were quite young in the 90s yeah didn't notice the the missing supreme court coverage but you didn't oh i did when i was <laughs> Listen, like i was hella nerdy but when i, did I was not 12 i was like where's like where's the coverage like, <laughs> <laughs> no my no. sisters might like text me later and say yes you did but that i remember i didn't catch that <laughs> But but seriously, if if there was like a long stretch of vacancy, of no vacancies, which is very possible with these very young, I know it's kind justices. of scary. I mean, we might be approaching that period right exactly. now. Exactly. What what are we gonna see? Are they actually going to do more extensive reporting on the court itself? Like it seems like seems like maybe you should. I don't know. What are your thoughts, Brendan? Well, I think it's a it's a really good question because I think it's a really interesting question because. When we talk about the court itself, how it operates, much of that discussion lives in that vacancy realm. When a justice has retired or died and we're looking back at the breadth of their work or a president is appointing a new person or thinking about doing so and we're thinking about what makes a good justice versus a bad justice and what is their job going to be and all that confirmation hearing stuff, that's about the court. It's about the people. It's about the institution. Whereas the cases are not always about that, right? They're about us. They're about the world. They're about impacts. They should be. Or at least especially before it even, before they're heard and we know that it's going to be heard, we could see stuff about those cases. And so the point being in your question is, if there are no vacancies, does that mean there's basically no real meaningful discussion about the institution? Right. 
that's independent of the individual cases? And oh, is that it, discussion reaching the fore, reaching the front pages, reaching the political consciousness? Yeah, and it gets me thinking, are we just accepting the institution in its current form? Right. With all its... <laughs> I don't know. Some Maybe some, some people think it's perfect. Maybe people think we should just kind of blow it up and start again. I mean, it could be more perfect, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm sure the Supreme Court fanatics will appreciate that plug. <laughs> but there's just kind of... It seems as if if you're not going to do that extensive coverage of the institution itself... There's just less work to do <laughs> if there's no vacancies. Exactly. I mean, I would expect that the coverage would shrink because you literally don't have these stories to tell. Right. So, Naomi, one more question for this pillar before we move on about the, the facts that were surfaced here. I was surprised, and I think I noted it, by how much coverage there was before a decision was handed down. Do you think that that's the right ratio? It's interesting. I really don't see that as like a clear marker of whether a story is done well or not or done appropriately. I think it really depends on the issue and how much it's understood. I think describing the history of a case, how it got to the Supreme Court, perhaps any interesting kind of angles of that sort would be really appropriate to explore prior to the case being even heard, right? Because there's a lot there. The case that you mentioned about the coach who was praying at the 50-yard line, that happened seven years ago. We'll, we'll hear argument first this morning in case 21-418, Kennedy versus Bremerton School District. The prayer. The Yeah, the coach praying. Mm-hmm. Like, has this... School district been happy since then? <laughs> right. Like, maybe they're thrilled he hasn't been praying the last seven years. Or maybe they're like, man, parents still selling us mean emails about it. Like, there's there's little acknowledgement. The way the stories are covered, it sometimes seems like that happened, like, in February, right? right. Or it recently happened. It happened seven years ago. And so I think there's ways to kind of explore an issue more broadly. Maybe not even the case, but the issue before cases are heard. And then once the case is heard, I think what should be more closely examined are like the questions that are asked. Um, by the justices. By the justice themselves. During the oral arguments. Correct. Because that'll tell us a lot about which way a story is going or which way a case is going instead of just like waiting until May or June for the decision to come out. Yeah, I'm kind of with you that I like this idea that there's more coverage or at least more coverage than I expected before a decision is handed down because during that period, the case is with the court. And so the court becomes a focus of scrutiny by the media and by the stories in a way that I think is healthy because they could potentially during that period be covering the court's activities. Whereas after a case is handed down, the court's like, all right, we're done with it. We're moving on. Right. That That's true. Like the, yeah, it's not sitting with them anymore. Right. Exactly. It's not in their court. Oh my God, Brendan. If we're going to do the whole season like this, <laughs> I'm out. Like, just <laughs> count me out. <laughs> but of course, 
This mainstream coverage is not the only coverage of the court that's out there. And Naomi, you have more to say about that. Yeah, so uh, for Pillar 2, I looked at kind of more the specialized coverage that is primarily developed for lawyers and law buffs and people in the legal space, really, and kind of explored if and how and why they're that that kind of coverage is relevant. So every summer I read news stories about recent Supreme Court decisions. Usually journalists in these stories spend very little time talking about the impact of a case, like you mentioned, Brendan. It's more or less a nerdy sports recap in my mind. Conservatives had this major win, liberal justices ranted that way in their dissent. You know, and especially if you think in the last few years as the court has gotten more conservative. They have ruled um, against the Biden administration over climate change authority. Um, This is considered a major blow to the federal government's power and perhaps a setback to the Biden administration. They have ruled. And I was thinking, like, am I reading like bad news? And, and, And I'm not. This is, you know, excellent institutions like The New York Times, The Post, The Wall Street Journal, NBC News, CBS credible news organizations but the stories about the decisions are written very quickly often there's like templates already designed out before decision is made about what was decided by whom and very little context there's not much to talk about really the next day at work maybe you're upset or like oh that was interesting but not not a ton now if you read a lot of political news like we do and spend way too much time on twitter like we do after a big news day there there's a lot to say or a lot to like text your friends Mm -hmm. and this is true both of like if you think about huge legislative priorities and kind of what what that impact might be but even for like funny and shallow things like how effective nancy pelosi is with like her big statement sunglasses right like there's so much like commentary yeah like small and large stories that like you're chewing on for a while about politics i don't think president trump former president trump would want to be subordinate on air force one and i think probably he prefers his own plane anyway well what do you think right and that's just not what we see at the supreme court at all Mm -hmm. if you want to understand a supreme court decision oftentimes you need to go into like a very niche legal media space where the audiences are lawyers, law law school graduates, or other close watchers of the court. So the last couple of months, I've spent a lot of time, a lot of time, listening to Supreme Court podcasts. There's progressive decision recaps like 5-4. Hey, everyone. This is Leon from Fiasco and Prologue Projects. On this premium episode of 5 to 4, Peter, Rhiannon... Strict scrutiny, passing judgment. There's conservative podcasts like SCOTUS 101 from the Heritage Foundation. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down... And there's, you know, nonpartisan ones or more in the middle podcasts like SCOTUS Talk, which is produced by SCOTUS Blog. And it's been a really interesting exercise. I've learned a ton about this year's cases. I learned how each side, you know, kind of made their case or, you know, the advocates, what they were trying to do, you know, what precedents are being challenged for a very specific case, you know, what earlier case kind of led up to this challenge, you know, and how the issue itself has evolved over time. And after listening to so many deep analysis of the court opinions, I went back to go look at those mainstream coverage those mainstream stories after decision broke on those same decisions on those same exact decisions Mm -hmm. exactly you know think like your nina totenberg from npr nina totenberg npr news washington 
Adam Liptak from the New York Times, Robert Barnes in the Washington Post. And I wanted to know, like, these are like super solid journalists. Do I get any, do I get remotely that same level of information that I got from these deep podcasts as I do in these stories? And the answer is absolutely not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can't find substantial coverage of the cases in more traditional mainstream places, like point blank. Do I think Nina Tonberg and Adam Liptak don't know how to do their job like no they're they're pretty badasses yeah so what does that mean then yeah i was kind of really ready to write up like my massive list of disappointments on how traditional mainstream media drops the ball but my overall impression is that what they're trying to do is so high level so surface level that it's so incredibly easy to miss the gravity of each decision. It's so easy to not kind of give your readers or your audience like real tangible understanding of what it might mean in their own life. It's kind of just like very abstract. So what was really awesome about all these podcasts is I gained much better understanding of these cases. I learned the history, the trajectory, like everything like I mentioned before. And like you mentioned, Brendan, before, with the exception of Dobbs, most of this coverage disappears by August of each decision. It's very rare where we see, you know, week after week after week, the impact. Which is kind of crazy considering most things take time for like the impact to even be known. Or for people to kind of to find more stories and, and things like that. So just like it became very clear to me that like I shouldn't be a lawyer or a law professor or be in law school and kind of consume this legal media to have an understanding of what these decisions were going to do in my life, potentially. It yeah. like kind of made me really frustrated. So that was kind of like more the traditional media. Then I spent some time thinking about op-eds, specifically op-eds of legal scholars. And wow, that was like a major learning curve. So prior to the summer, I spent almost zero time on legal opinion pieces in the main in mainstream institutions. You know, I'm not a lawyer, (laughs) although I like to argue people like I am, but I'm not (laughs) a lawyer. And I and, (laughs) and so I never really thought these articles were relevant to me. But what my research demonstrated is that legal thinkers in these opinion sections normalize a certain way of thinking, framing, and justifying court procedures and decisions. And a lot of these writers are made up of law professors that often are former, you know, Supreme Court clerks themselves. So they stay, they yeah. say things to stay in the good graces of the court mm-hmm. and of the justices themselves. They might want to get students to their own students to get clerkships i mean it's just like it's such a small circle of legal minds talking to other people within that same circle yeah they're they're not writing out of the goodness of their heart they, they've they got a stake in what they're saying sure sure and so like full disclosure i learned a lot of this because the hosts of five four talk about this all the time maybe helps you get tenure and all that and so this person is very invested in the supreme court its legitimacy it's being popularly understood as a fair institution, that is in her interest. The fact that these people get to peddle this, what is propaganda, right? That is like self-serving propaganda yes. and get passed off as experts, right? Yeah. It pisses me off. One thing I want to point out. And I was like, really? Is this like that big a deal? Like maybe these guys are just like, I don't know, they're really annoyed. Like, and I had like zero awareness that this was happening. And they have a certain ire for a Harvard professor named Noah Feldman in particular. He was a former clerk of Jesser Souter. He writes a column in Bloomberg about the Supreme Court and about law more broadly. Just this year, he infamously wrote that op-ed that got a lot of buzz when he said Amy Comey Barrett 
Uh, he didn't agree anything with her, but she'll be a great justice. And <laughs> just because she works really hard and she's really smart. Because she drives the bus really straight. <laughs> oh, wait, she's not a bus driver, is she? Yeah. So, so before <laughs> her opinions <laughs> matter to her job. <laughs> yeah. So before June, I had no idea that Noah Feldman even existed. But what became clear to me in kind of like reading the history of his work is that, you know, some of his columns are like, you know, fine. Like, I, I, I didn't see a major problem. But then I don't know where there'd be this story that was like so obtuse. Like, it was just so wild to me that like I was not the target audience. And there was one column in particular where he's like he, he thought it was like zero big deal that the majority of the Supreme Court justices and their clerks are from Harvard and Yale Law Schools. Like, he just thought it was, like, absolutely not an issue at all. thousand men of Harvard want victory Teaches at Harvard, and correct? he teaches at Harvard Law School. <laughs> I don't see what the issue Why, is. We're all, yeah, we're so great. And he like talks about how <sighs> Sonia Sotomayor is Catholic, and we have also conservative Catholics in the court, and that like shows that you could have. It, it was just completely crazy, and it got me thinking that this seems so similar to what we see on the Sunday shows on the panels, right? Our Our House Roundtable covers all the week's politics. I think it's so easy to dismiss the panels as like mm-hmm. not important. Right. But what those same talking heads could do is dismiss or trivialize, you know, grassroots movements or, you know, a, a specific policy priority. These same legal elites don't talk about the lack of transparency on the court. They don't advocate for strong reforms. You know, in fact, the reforms that are getting buzz are often downplayed, if not dismissed completely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so they... They normalize an institution they have that they themselves have such a strong connection to. And a stake in. A stake in, absolutely. I mean, yeah, it's it's their work completely. I do want to highlight one incredible resource, though, that is, ex- that is extensively used by lawyers, legal journalists, and other people who kind of engage with the courts, and that's SCOTUS blog. Wow, holy crap. So SCOTUS blog is an incredible journalistic legal resource if you have any interest in any case it has everything (laughs) it's everything in one place it has your original ruling the petitions the opinions the oral arguments on top of any kind of key moments by the actual reporters who were in the room and the analysis at each stage so they've got the original documents right it's documents and coverage itself it's an absolutely extraordinary encyclopedia of knowledge about the court and how it operates today. And they also feature articles and data analysis on each of the justices, helping you get an idea of which justices are more frequently in the majority, which justices tend to join with other justices and opinions, how many women argue before the court. There's just so much to explore. They do it exhaustively. They do it incredibly well. And SCOTUS blog has become completely indispensable both in legal and journalistic circles they went to peabody and they're like the first blog to ever do it Mm. they were also this was not on my list but 
I have to note that they were founded by like a husband and wife duo. So already so much respect. Oh, yeah. That means more to me than a Peabody. That's (laughs) That's for sure. When the Obamacare ruling happened, CNN and Fox News messed up the rulings. All right, John, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Kate Baldwin has got some information. Kate, go ahead. Tell us what's going on. This is our first reading. We're still going through the reading, the, the, the opinion, but I want to bring you the breaking news that according to producer Bill Mears, the individual mandate is not a valid of not a valid exercise of the Commerce Clause. So it appears as if the Supreme Court justices have struck down the individual mandate, the centerpiece of the health care legislation. I'm going to hop back on this phone to try to get more information for you and bring it right to you, Wolf. Wow, that's a dramatic moment. Uh, if, in fact, uh, the Supreme Court has ruled that the individual mandate is, in fact, unconstitutional, that would be history unfolding right now. We're going to get a lot more information. This is just the initial headline that we're getting from inside the Supreme Court to our own Kate Baldwin. Uh, John King is outside the Supreme Court watching all of this unfold. What a setback, John. This would be for the president, for the Democrats, those who supported this health care law, if they ruled that the and finally, Fox News simply read SCOTUS blog on the air where they <laughs> kind of clarified what the <laughs> what the decision actually meant. Which is so embarrassing to read someone else's coverage because you got it so like, wrong. And also, this is, you know, for, I mean, this is what, 2012? Yeah, this is 10 years ago. Right, right, right. But I'm saying, like, in the early aughts, like, news organizations thought blogs were oh, such yeah, a joke. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> My whole, like, undergrad experience was... My journalism school saying like blogs aren't like you know bloggers are jokes bloggers don't have real careers mm-hmm. like, bloggers are dumb like don't be a blogger they're sitting in the basement oh, wearing yeah, every, sweatshirts were all, the bloggers are always in a basement <laughs> <laughs> anyway okay I'm, I'm deviating oh and another thing that i thought was very fascinating tom goldstein one of the founders of scotus blogs was actually a former intern of nina totenberg interesting and yet going beyond traditional coverage. Yeah. And he, I mean, he's also a lawyer who advocates in, before the court as well. So anyway, what does the existence of SCOTUS blog mean to the media landscape? It means that information is out there for people who want to seek it, who want to find it, who want to understand more. But that's also kind of the same challenge, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, what about the general public? What about the general voter? Are they going to SCOTUS blog? Mm, probably not. You know, I... What I would love to see is like a place where there's like one pages about the core decisions, you yeah. know, um, in simple, easy language, simple, yeah. easy takeaways, like resources that civics and government teachers can then use in their own classroom, you know, something like of that sort. It still feels really hard as an average American, average voter to have a place that tries to deliver that information to you about the Supreme Court. One of our three branches of government, it, it seems like it's not there. It seems like it's only for the lawyers and law buffs of of the country. And that that conversation among that group, it sounds like you're saying, doesn't challenge the institution. Right. Because it has a stake in that institution. You know, it's Absolutely. essentially, you know, what what you would call a trade publication coverage, right? We're, yeah. We're just explaining what this institution is doing because it affects our lives, our livelihood, and our job is not to question it. Our job is to understand it so that we can do whatever whatever it is we do in law, you know, yeah, as, and it as seemed, readers yeah, of those. Right. So, like, if you're trying to find, like, who are the law experts, the legal experts that are cited most frequently, and it's like, oh, it's these people who think that the Supreme Court is fine. Like, that would be what the analysis would show you like we that we don't have a problem with our with the court as a 
as an institution and how it's run or, you know, it, it just seems so far from the level of detail that we get about the other branches. An excellent overview, Naomi, of that specialized, deeper coverage, a lot of it in new media realms, as you're talking about, right? Yeah. Uh, one thing that you said that, that struck me earlier in what you were talking about was the importance of ongoing coverage beyond, you know, a month or two. I think the Affordable Care Act is a great example because there's all these other ramifications that are really long legal and pop you know, substantial policy fights because of that decision, thinking specifically that states didn't have to be required to expand Medicaid eligibility, right? And so for the last, you know, 10 years, there's been a patchwork of states that have expanded eligibility and ones that haven't. And so the ease of being able to afford health insurance is really dependent on where you live because maybe you just got Medicaid and maybe that's kind of like solves your coverage problems and so but like and i've seen i mean anyone who's listened to polylog knows i've healthcare is kind of like my jam but very rarely in any of those conversations does it go back to this decision right talking about how they came up with this justification or how they explained it and it'd be interesting to think about like whether or not people think that's a good decision because there's been so much ongoing work around medicaid expansion like literally in the last two years there's still new states that are like Voters are forcing their state legislatures to expand Medicaid. Crazy. Just insane. But like those voters who have to do that work don't realize that they're doing that work 10 years later because the Supreme Court made that decision. Like that is the connection that I think is what I'm trying to underscore that is not apparent at all in our Supreme Court coverage. Yeah, that's a huge, huge point. Like understanding who and what is responsible for the world we're living in. Exactly. And this gets me to like my whole point about my sense that the media, and we'll talk about it in greater detail in other episodes as well, that the media doesn't think of the Supreme Court as an institution that wields the political power that it does. They often think of it as a a football, a political football that other power players like the president or Congress or, you know, the parties are using. You know, it's it's a football on the on the political field. It's not a player on that field. And and it is definitely a player on that field with a tremendous amount of political power. Absolutely. Because the thing that we should remember here is that it's not just that the Supreme Court has the power to strike down laws of Congress. It's that the word of the Supreme Court is essentially equal to the word of the constitution so because they interpret right so there have been several instances where the supreme court has deemed a law unconstitutional or made a ruling and congress didn't like it and went back and tried to pass legislation but they had to be very careful about what they did because they couldn't actually overturn what the supreme court said or redo it or respecify like there there's a limit to what they can do because supreme court rulings essentially have the power of the constitution and as you know in our system we don't update the constitution that often before we move on to the next pillar i was curious your thoughts of whether you think this specialized legal media would be as necessary or as influential if our traditional media 
did a better job covering the Supreme Court? I think my answer is 100% yes, it would still be there. I believe the specialized media would still be there. And the reason I say that is thinking about other areas of news coverage where there's still a very, very healthy media ecosystem beyond the mainstream publications, even when the mainstream publications cover that media in greater detail. So I'm thinking, for example, think about pop culture, think about, you know, TV shows, right? Game of Thrones is a great example. You and I watched the first season. We didn't watch the others. People might think that's crazy. But I quit at the Red Wedding and I regret nothing. Exactly. I feel the same. But listen, <laughs> well, I was I, I was turning that key with you, right? <laughs> but <laughs> But anyway, the point is Game of Thrones was a massive success. It was covered, one might say, even more than the Supreme Court. I don't know. <laughs> maybe we could, oh maybe God, we could add so it up. <laughs> but it was covered extensively during its run in the mainstream press. But guess what? There were still tons of podcasts out there. I would posit there were probably more podcasts about Game of Thrones out there than there are about SCOTUS. Welcome to Hot D, the officially unofficial podcast for House of the Dragon. I'm Jim. I'm Aaron. Oh, Hello and welcome to Cast of Thrones, the Game of Thrones podcast. I'm your host, Michael DeMauro, and with me is your other host, Jennifer Cheek. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Coffee Clatch Crew Game of Thrones episode review. I'm Jason Pistorino. I'm Christina Lomangino. The night is dark and full of terror, but we're here to shed some light on this week's Game of Thrones. Season 8, episode 4. And there were blogs of people who loved it and analyzed it and wrote fan fiction about it and did all sorts of things and dressed up as it, <laughs> right. right? As people do of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, so that's fine. But listen, that existed concurrently with deeper media coverage of the show. And so I do think this this other media would still exist regardless of what the New York Times is doing. Yeah, I think they I think you're right. I think they would still be there. I'm just I, I think the non lawyers, right? The the me's of the world who like knowing all the things but we're we're not experts in that field. I think there's a way to be more satisfied with the mainstream media and not feel like you have to go to these specialized places to learn more. Yeah, I mean, I think the, I think the so point... I think their influence would be different, I guess is what I'm saying. Right. I think the point you're kind of getting to, or my sense of it is, is that you shouldn't, as a news consumer, have to be deeply passionate about a subject matter in order to get a better understanding of it than we're getting of the Supreme Court, right? Like, if you love astronomy and you're deeply passionate about it, then you're going to read tons of astronomy publications and podcasts. Yeah, that's not me. And I'm you're not, not going that. to, you know, d limit yourself to what the New York Times says about the Big Hadron Collider or whatever. That's not even astronomy related. I was, wondering, I was like, is that a thing? Like, you could have, like, acted like it was and I would... <laughs> It's, it's physics. It's not astronomy. Okay. I was trying to name. I want to name that new that new satellite telescope that just went online, but I can't remember the name of it. That were revealed. Yeah, we finally got pictures back from the James Webb Space Telescope. This is the biggest, newest telescope that NASA has. So these first photographs. Right. I think like 
I think you're right. What I'm trying to express is like feeling disrespect is a bit heavy of a word, but it shouldn't. There's an undue burden on the average person. <laughs> There's a Supreme Court. Exactly. Term. But like it, it's a burden that I shouldn't have to like accept. Right. Like I, it just feels completely unnecessary um, for me to have to consume these deep legal media content to have a basic understanding of what these decisions might mean to me. Well, Naomi, I definitely agree with you, but there's some important things we haven't mentioned yet, and that is about how much the Supreme Court itself is a black box and makes itself difficult to cover by the media. So we definitely need to talk about that before we go too much further. That seems fair. Brendan, take it away with Pillar 3. That's Pillar 3. So why is the Supreme Court covered the way it is? Partly it is that the Supreme Court as I said, is something of a black box. Although it's funny, we say black box as if it's something that like one can't see into. But of course, in an airplane, a black box is recording everything important that's happening. And the Supreme Court is not doing that. They are not making that accessible to us. The Supreme Court, here here are just some important, like I'm just going to rapid fire go off with some of these facts, okay? The Supreme Court writes no press releases or summaries. It has no press secretary and no explainer to the public like other branches. No one to help people understand how it works, either through media or video or audio or, like you said, Naomi, like a one-page simple summary. Doesn't exist. Supreme Court's like, ah, that's not our job. Our job is not to make things accessible to the public who we serve. It releases no annual report or State of the Union address or speech about the workings of the court beyond a legal review of circuit courts that the Chief Justice releases that has basically nothing to do with the operation of the Supreme Court itself. It allows no television cameras or even still cameras into its courtroom. I am against it because I do not believe as the proponents of television in the court assert that the purpose of of uh, televising our hearings would be to educate the american people that's not what 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 it would end up doing what most of the american people would see would be 30 second 15 second takeouts the number of hard press passes is extremely limited and doesn't include publications like SCOTUS blog, which is outrageous. Insulting. And it's also worth noting that it's not a leaky institution because its legal staff is comprised of young, ambitious clerks who serve short terms and who would be torpedoing their entire careers if a leak was discovered to come from them. Whereas if they're in another like federal agency and these are just people's jobs and they've been there for decades and, you know, those are much leakier institutions in general, the way they're set up. An exclusive to CNN, Supreme Court officials escalating their search for the source of the leaked draft decision that would overturn Roe versus Wade. Let's get right to CNN's Joan Priskupic with this exclusive reporting. Joan, what have you learned? Well, they're certainly ramping up this search for who who would have leaked this document to Politico. Uh, it's been four weeks now since Chief Justice John Roberts announced that he was launching an investigation. Apparently, insufficient progress has been made. So they're now turning to the clerks, stepping up efforts to have them sign affidavits and to turn over cell phone records. This is a very aggressive move, and it's raised some concerns among the clerks. You know, John, how much information is on our cell phones. Also, the public has been 
basically no means to access most of the material that's actually produced by the court and the staff at taxpayer expense in the form of draft opinions, memos, other internal documents. The way that we often can get these things through FOIA requests in other areas of the federal government. We haven't even mentioned the biggest one that really drove us crazy while we did Polylog. It grants practically no media interviews on current or recent events. Yes, justices will have the stray interview when they are promoting their book, Justice Breyer. One of the most interesting parts of your book, you say at one point, it's wrong to think of the court as a political institution. But then you quickly add... Or when they are talking about civic engagement on C-SPAN. But yes, the justices practically operate in stealth mode. They don't always announce when or where they are giving their speeches, which are often given at private events. And they don't always post those speeches to the Supreme Court website the way they did in the past, even though there's actually a section called speeches, which hasn't been updated in years. This doesn't mean they haven't been given speeches in years. From when we're recording this, literally Chief Justice Roberts gave a speech in the last 24 hours. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and another point worth noting, speaking of operating in stealth mode, the justices operate without a judicial code of conduct. There is a code of conduct for lower courts, for judges who sit there, among them many of the justices who ultimately went to the Supreme Court, but the Supreme Court justices haven't adopted this code of conduct. As a result, practically every sitting justice has at one time or another conducted themselves in ways that would have been in breach of this ethical code of conduct if they happened to serve under that code of conduct. So what are the media implications? Well, without the guide of a real press office steering media coverage to what's important, journalists are left on their own to read opinions and parse the meaning. The documents released in the Dobbs decision, which includes the majority, minority, and various concurrences, amounted to more than 200 pages. Not surprising, then, although still embarrassing, that organizations like Fox News and CNN screwed up that ACA <laughs> yeah. piece, right? So as a result of this, it shouldn't be a surprise that the public has very little knowledge of how the court operates. Even the most basic things, like who the chief justice is. A Pew Research survey five years after John Roberts was appointed chief justice, which should be a healthy amount of time, found that just 28% of Americans could identify him as chief justice. Even after the confirmation hearings of Justices Elena Kagan and Sonia Sotomayor, polling found that close to 60% of Americans had learned little or nothing about Kagan, and about 50% had learned little or nothing about Sotomayor, even though an analysis by Pew found that Sotomayor's confirmation got twice as much coverage. She met with 89 senators, faced six weeks of scrutiny, but on Monday, a virtual script will unfold for the confirmation of Sonia Sotomayor. I'm enthusiastic about it. Democrats like Patrick Leahy will push the personal story of the girl from the projects, the Yale grad who could have made millions but who started her career as a prosecutor and who is now the first Hispanic nominee to the Supreme Court. This judge is an example of what we tell our children they can grow up to be. The Republican script calls for tough but respectful questions. Twice as much coverage does not mean twice as much understanding. 
which is ridiculous. That's like absolutely insane. Like I'm just like <laughs> sitting with that. Like what? <laughs> it's terrible. And I think the craziest part about this to me is that the Supreme Court justices themselves are no big fans of the press or the media. They're in fact more skeptical than ever. So one thing I learned was that Chief Justice Warren E. Berger, who served and was appointed in 1969 and served for well over a decade there, he was extremely skeptical of the New York Times and the Washington Post. He was a conservative appointed by Nixon, and he felt that those papers underplayed conservative appointed justices and overplayed liberal appointed justices and demanded that the paper of record in his chambers, that is to say his offices, was the Christian Science Monitor and not either of those big papers. So it goes back a while, but they are more skeptical than ever. According to a study published last year, 2021, there hasn't been a single positive reference to the trustworthiness of the press from any justice on the court in more than a decade. What about when Breyer was selling his book? Nothing. He, well, he, they he, were didn't, looking he didn't at, say he was happy to be They on. were looking at actual opinions, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> be funny if Breyer was like, and Chris Wallace, I still hate you. <laughs> Buy my book. <laughs> yes. And so the justices, they disparage the press at almost every opportunity. Whenever they're asked, for example, about why they won't allow cameras into the court, their answers are, are just a cornucopia of bemoaning the press. We don't, and want, to. We don't want to be, you know, reduced to sound bites. It's like, listen, if the press is doled out, if our media is doled out in sound bites and tweets, then your rulings are going to be doled out in sound bites and tweets. The only difference is they're not going to be voiced by you. They're going to be voiced by other people. And, and that's the reality, right? The justices rely on the press because of their closed nature to describe and summarize their work to the public because they just won't do it directly. And as a result, well, and it, it just shows that yeah. they don't value the general American. Exactly right. To understand what they do. That No, you're exactly right on that. Like their disparagement of the press and them being closed in all the ways that I just enumerated here, which I'm done with this section, by the way, done describing it. But that cloistered nature, you're not cloistered like that because you don't like the reporters who are walking the halls, which, by the way, they're not really allowed to walk by the chambers of the actual justices. But it's not that you don't like a certain reporter or a certain network or a certain newspaper. You don't like the American people because you don't trust them to understand how you do your job. If the American people sat down and watched our proceedings gavel to gavel, they would never again ask, as I'm sometimes asked, yeah, Justice Lee, why do you have to be a, uh, a lawyer to be on the Supreme Court? The Constitution doesn't say, no, the Constitution doesn't say so. But if you know what our real business is, if you know that we're not usually contemplating our navel, should there be a right to this or that? Should there be a right to abortion? Should there be a right to homosexuality? That's not usually what we're doing. We're usually dealing with the Internal Revenue Code, with ERISA, which all, with, with patent law, with all sorts of dull stuff that only a lawyer could uh, could understand uh, and, and perhaps get interested in. If the American people saw all of that, they would be educated. That's the reality. Yeah, the press is a conduit to the people. Exactly. 
and you don't feel like there's value in that conduit. Yeah. For every 10 people who sat through our proceedings gavel to gavel, there would be 10,000 who would see nothing but a 30-second takeout from one of the proceedings, which I guarantee you would not be representative of what we do. So they would, would in effect, be given a misimpression of the Supreme Court. I think what outrages me the most isn't that this makes it really hard for the media to do its job, because yes, it does. But what outrages me is as a citizen that this is an institution that serves the people, and yet it has no interest in communicating to those people Mm -hmm. what it's doing Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and holding itself accountable to those people by being transparent with the way it's affecting those people's lives. Well, and especially given the fact that they're lifetime appointments, like it's a public service that you are agreeing to for life, and yet there is zero expectation to talk to the American people directly after they like have their confirmation hearing. <laughs> like It's just like, that's the last time they talk directly to the American people. The last time they have to. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just like, realizing sometimes that. I'm just like, even... a, like, yeah. Verbalizing that for the first time. And it's like crazy. Yeah. That's yeah. That's really wild. It's literally your like last job interview. Right. And then you're like, See you, suckers. Never talking to you again. Bye. Well, well, and we'll talk more about that in, in, I think, an entire episode. (laughs) And the fact that that interview is a freaking joke. I know. Nobody could answer questions in any other job interview and expect to get the job. On the questions of law, however, I just, because I'm a sitting judge and because you can't answer questions without going through the judicial process can't give answers to those very specific questions. By saying, oh, well, I can't talk about that. Senator Blumenthal, I, again, you know, I've said throughout the hearing that I can't grade precedent in the words of Justice Kagan, give it a thumbs up or a thumbs down. So you can't give me a yes or no answer. Again, forgive me for interrupting, but my time is limited. No, I can't. We're going to do a whole episode on appointments and confirmations. I cannot answer that question because I cannot suggest agreement or disagreement with precedents of the Supreme Court. I don't want to get into hypotheticals about how I'll conduct myself in this job I'm trying to get. Oh my gosh. We're really, been really chill guys prepping for this season. Yeah. The way this, you're describing their cloistered nature, it makes it seem as if like the Supreme Court has no relationships or no presence outside of like the building. And that's not true because like to their respective groups, right? They're, they, they, they have private speeches, they have private events and that are not accessible to the American people that they don't have to report. And, and you say respective groups, what do you mean by that? Like conservative legal groups or, you know, pro-democracy groups or, you know, special interest groups right. is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. But those events are, you know, highly, are often like very elite membership groups. Yeah, like the Federalist Society, which we will talk about right. in a whole episode. But... But the point being is that these are not spaces, they don't actively try to be accessible to the public. And they're actively choosing more and more spaces that are inaccessible to the public. And so it, it's just like they move in the opposite direction to where like all of us are. I'm like, hey, excuse me, excuse me, what are you doing? And they're like, bye, 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 bye. Like just getting further and further away. Yeah, I mean, famously, Justice Alito 
spoke to the National Federalist Society conference in Washington, D.C., like the annual one, pretty frequently, Mm -hmm. and refused to allow his speech transcript to be released, for the speech to be recorded in any shape or form. Like, no one was able to, to, to see what he was saying to these groups. And they're groups whose agendas, his decisions, are explicitly championing. Right. And he is literally... Like rooting on in these speeches, which we've been able to discover because during COVID it was digital and there was better access to Zoom calls, as we've all learned. Some of those watching tonight may be new to Federalist Society events and may have heard a lot of misinformation about the society. So let me say a word at the outset about what the society is, what it is not, and why I have been a member for many years. (laughs) <laughs> then, uh, then closed God conferences. Bless the Zoom recording, My right? God. But but the, he's going right back to the to the closed conference. Oh yeah, absolutely. Right, and we, we won't see that speech this We're year. We're not going to see him ever again. So one of the things that members of the court say, and a lot of commentators, maybe among that group that has a stake in preserving the court as it is, say, is that the reason that the court doesn't grant more interviews is that they'd appear to lose their neutrality in the eyes of the public, who would come to see them as just another example of politicians and pundits. Why would they stoop to the level, for example, of going on a Sunday morning news show? What do you think of that argument? You want me to respect you, but you're not going to try to talk to me. I'm not the right person to ask. (laughs) Let me me say this. This is like, like how to piss off Naomi 101, where I have to respect your authority but you give no justification for why i need to respect that authority this is why i don't do well in certain jobs or religious groups (laughs) but (laughs) anyway but i think in general maybe for other people (laughs) now you're just i have to like separate myself because this is like the, the the like this like just stabs me in the heart and brain to say like you have to respect an institution, but they don't respect you and they're not going to tell you anything. So like it, it doesn't work <laughs> for me. But I think their their premise is about maintaining control. Like it's about maintaining control of their image, of their story, of their prestige, of, a, you know, it's it's really control and manipulation in my mind more than it's about like earning and maintaining respect because the respect isn't earned and that's the only type of respect that matters no i i totally know what you mean there when it comes to respect something you said just really resonated with me which is it really depends on how the justice conducts themselves right like if the justice who goes on the sunday morning political shows to help explain a recent decision does so thoughtfully brings in examples of their like knowledge their deep knowledge and and understanding of the case and their respect for all the people affected by the case like there is a a media playbook like there is a a way to go about these sorts of interviews that could increase i think the court's reputation if they're actually willing to do it and able to do it and recognize the value of it. 
I mean, we know that there are politicians out there, regardless of what party they're in, who can do this, right? Who even people who are of the opposing party can see on these types of programs and say, oh, I understand where they're coming from. Like, I don't agree with the conclusion they made, but they seem to have really thought it through and they seem to have the best interest of the American public. And, you know, in this case, it would be the best interest of our constitutional framework, right, in mind. So there is a way to do it. I think it's a it's just an easy out to say, oh, well, they'll just assume like we're just another politician if we go on a show that other politicians are on. But it's like you are a political actor. You have control over the politics and policy of this country. So you can't just opt out of that and say that you're not going to participate. Because by doing that, as we've said here, your understanding of the Supreme Court is distorted. And it Mm -hmm. is not true. And I've seen quotes from these justices that where they say things like, if the American people could just see how we reach our decisions and all the work and thought we put into it, then they wouldn't think that we're just a political institution. Well, then let them see that. Turn some cameras on, for God's sake, so someone can watch it on C-SPAN. So, like, you know, an eighth grader who's studying it in government class can actually sit through one of the oral arguments and not have to be one of the few people who's privileged to fly to to freaking Washington, D.C., to view it, right? Like, that is an outrage. It, it just doesn't make sense to me. Like, if you think your work is so important, and yet you don't care if people understand it, but you want people to respect it. Like, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> not even remotely. So, Brendan, I just wanted to kind of wrap up the pillars here with this fourth pillar around the workings of the court itself, which are very similar to kind of some of the stuff you were mentioning. So, in addition to kind of the lack of access, there's very little coverage and very little shown about how the court actually conducts their work. There's very little coverage on who was hired, the analysis of the clerk selections, and where the clerks end up going afterward. Now, this is, of course, by design because they love being super secret. And these are relationships that are not just for the year when they're with their justice. These are lifetime relationships that they have with that justice. So very little details come out for the rest of the life of the justice about their experience. It's crazy. More most recently, you know, Justice Breyer retired. It's not like we have a glut of like and and now the justice's former clerks can share what they learned or share how this decision was made or what he Right, because it's not going to affect him. Yeah, in the future. Right. It's not that it's not going to affect his work. Like you just don't do that at all as a clerk. You know, and journalistically I find this super puzzling because is it like no is no one curious about how things are run, the, like the operation of the court itself? You know, what's changed from year to year? I'm very curious. Yeah. Technology (laughs) changes from the last like 25 years alone would be like really interesting. What are like the cyber concerns that the court has and how do they like make sure to, you know, keep things secure? Like it's just it'd be it'd be nice to talk about uh, something other than the decisions (laughs) that are come down every May and June. And it just seems like such an obvious place that is so ripe for exploring you know, the workings of the court throughout the rest of the calendar year when there seems to be some lulls. So just a quick kind of like summary, quick rapid fire, kind of like how you did, Brendan, about process and rules of the court. 
staff size. Most people don't know how big staffs the staff is of each justice. Some senators have, you know, staffs as large as 80 people, depending on how many kind of committee assignments you have. The justices have staffs of three to four clerks who are usually recent law school graduates who do a lot of the legal work that the justices have to get done. They serve only for one year and then they're replaced by new clerks. So it's not like there's like seniority built up. Right. And then in addition to that, usually a justice has about three to four administrative staffers. Reviewing Which is just remarkably small. Yeah, it's just, yeah. I mean, also like the salary is like $70,000 for these clerks. They work like, a hundred hours a week and the people who can afford this is after like then really expensive law school so the people who can afford that are usually white but then what does it pay after they're out of there oh we'll talk about that in a second (laughs) yeah reviewing petitions there are eight thousand legal petitions to the court to take up each year these are called petitions for certiorari and they are reviewed and summarized into short memos by the law clerks and then before the oral arguments, there's some work that has to happen. On the weeks that they're hearing an opinion, justice hear oral arguments from two cases a day on three days a week. So it's like a set day that they hear arguments. And then for each case, it's customary for each justice to review the lower court's opinion. They read the petitioner's brief. They read the respondent's brief. They read the amicus briefs submitted by kind of third parties in support of you know one side or the other and they have a discuss them on the clerks maybe even asking for you know other memos from clerks on a point of law or history so it's it's a lot of work i mean for each oral argument absolutely there's tons of prep that happens to understand like what what's the issue at hand yeah and it's a lot to hold in your head for just one week of of work right like you're hearing six cases a week yeah other kind of things that happen is the conference process itself that's usually later in the same week justices sit in what is called conference and they discuss it among themselves deciding what the votes are for and against dividing into kind of majority and minority opinions these meetings are closed to everyone but the justices and there isn't even an assistant or a secretary or anyone taking the notes yeah, it's supposed so to be nine. it's supposed to be the chief justice's job to like keep count of where things are. But Warren E. Berger, when he became chief justice, was awful at this and he would frequently get this wrong. He'd be like, "Oh, I think uh, th- this was in the majority." It's like, "No, that was the minority." Well, weren't you in the minority? No, I was in the majority. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> That's terrible. "What? What what is it?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I hope there's some like online voting thing now. My god. <laughs> So the writing of opinions itself, if the chief justice in the majority, he assigns the writer of the opinion, a lot of power to Chief Justice Roberts. Each year it's customary for each justice to write about, you know, five to eight majority opinions on top of some concurrences and dissents. The average opinion is around 20 pages long, but for big contentious decisions, it's often, you know, 100 pages long. And I think you mentioned, Brendan, that the Dobbs decision was kind of in that ballpark yeah the clerks write the drafts and then the drafts are rewritten and revised by the justices who then circulate the drafts to their colleagues it's a lot a lot a lot of work for a very tiny staff yeah and then timeline so the court's yearly terms begins on the first monday in october and essentially lasts until the first monday of the following october it used to feel like the court was kind of done um the majority of the decisions are usually done by mid-june 
And a lot of people still think that like the court's off until then, but that's not really the case anymore. After the decisions in May, the court is still preparing for fall a lot, but they're also deciding on emergency actions that do not require holding arguments or writing opinions. This is often referred to most recently as the shadow docket. Big decisions are coming out of this with very little, very little detail for us to understand any of their work behind it. So the work is definitely ongoing and we shouldn't consider the term over in the summer. The session rolls right into each other every October. And so I just kind of briefly want to go back to clerks because there's so much to say about clerks here. <laughs> they get a ton of support by their you know, three to four clerks that they get. These are people who are doing research, writing opinions, and a lot of other supportive work, sometimes like writing speeches for places where they'll be speaking. So that maybe no one will ever hear. <laughs> but if you think about it, there's nine justices. There's about four clerks that they hire. So that's up to 36 people. That's not a lot of people. <laughs> no, again, as we mentioned, some Senate staffers have staffs that are twice that. Right. Just for one senator. Yeah. And there's very little fanfare in the press about these hirings, what they've done before, their personal experience, what their background is. And getting a clerkship sets you up for life. I cannot underscore this enough how much you are. It is literally a golden ticket. Big law firms have an average signing bonus of $400,000 to former clerks. Yeah. I mean, they're like surgeons, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. And then former clerks you know, become law school professors, they become deans, they become judges, and they advocate before the court. So it should be exciting, or at the very least, interesting to understand who is getting selected to do this work. Now, the rare clerk story that sometimes we do see, and it is really due to a man named Tony Morrow, who did a survey about 20 years ago, looking at the racial and gender breakdown of the clerks. And he found that the grand grand majority of them were white men fewer than two percent were african-american and one percent were hispanic and only a quarter were women and again this is as the representation was growing in law schools but we're not seeing that at the clerks who were hired at all and then if you outrageous yeah it's (laughs) it's so gross and then from even just from 2005 to 2018 so kind of more recently it still continued about 85 percent of all supreme court law clerks were white and the black and hispanic representation of clerks barely moved women moved up to a third uh of the clerks were, were women instead of a quarter which is about what their what their population numbers are right they're about a third <laughs> of people aren't, aren't they <laughs> And I would also say this is both true for both liberal and conservative judges. You know, RBG hired one black clerk in her 40 years on the appeal and Supreme Court courts. One. Something that is never talked about. By white people. But yeah, I think black people talk about it. And then the other thing, too, that has actually been really interesting that I've been reading the last few weeks is talking about feeder judges and how... A lot of the Supreme Court clerks have multiple clerkships now. So like they they had served as clerks previously. Yeah. One, two, two times before they even get to the Supreme Court. In other in other to other judges. For lower courts. Correct. Mm-hmm. So they've almost become like. There's perf- like there's tracks. If yeah, you Think about it. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. If you, if you become, you know, if you do a clerkship with one judge at the district level, you know, his clerks often get selected for, you know, Justice Thomas or whatever. And then when it's interesting because when this research was first done 
in the 90s and it was like the late 90s a lot of the former clerks really didn't want to participate in the research some were you know quite rude to tony morrow but he was able to get at least some data right now it's very difficult to get that information they're able to get it sometimes because you know like linkedin and other kind of public record places but the court itself comments even less than it did before about its gender and racial breakdown of their clerk class. And and they're not required to talk about it, right? They're just not. So again, a very few select people doing this work on these opinions, on this research and how the justices are going to go each one way or the other. And there's just so little that is explored or discussed about them. I guess another way to put it is being a clerk in the Supreme Court is more exclusive in this country than being a senator. Yeah. Because there are 100 senators, there are only 36 clerks. So just to wrap up, both how they do the work and who is doing this, this work is part of that black box that you mentioned, Brendan. And they are just not willing and not open to discussing it with reporters who cover the Supreme Court even. Like, it's just, it's not information to share with us. And it's not, again, something we see with other branches of government. Yeah, well, this is so helpful. And I just, I'm at a loss to understand when Supreme Court reporters think people are going to learn this type of stuff. Because they'll often throw terms around like clerk. Like, we hear that all the time. Oh, well, you know, Katanji Brown Jackson clerked for Justice Breyer. And John Roberts clerked for, you know, Chief Justice Rehnquist. Okay, so there are clerks. I get that as a news consumer. What does that mean, clerked for? What does that mean? I didn't know what that meant until we started this project a few months ago. And I think a lot of people don't know what it means. They don't know how exclusive it is. They don't know how limited in time it is. And they probably don't know how small these staffs are. You know, I read Chief Justice Rehnquist's book about the history of the Supreme Court, and he talks about when he first became an associate justice on the court, he ran into somebody at church who happened to be a lawyer and knew him just offhand and said, hey, I'm looking for a new job. Uh, What do you think of me like working on your staff or working on the staff of the court? And Rehnquist said, how many people do you think work for me? (laughs) And the, the young lawyer was like, I don't know, 20, 30 people or 15, 20 people. And Rehnquist is like, no, it's like three. I have three lawyers who work for me. That's it. Because that's how many he had at the time before they went to four. And the lawyer was just like, oh, well, then, yeah, that doesn't work. And Rehnquist was like, yeah. And they're mostly, they're, they're like all people who just graduated from college. From law school. From law school. Yeah. And so... But and Anna will even, say, like th- this is just not common knowledge about how this institution works. Yeah, I think my it's interesting about like even us who are politically astute and how little we knew about it. Like I knew having getting a clerkship was like, super elite. I didn't realize they didn't have staff much staff beyond them. I thought they had like a chief of staff. I thought they would have like more administrative yeah. support where seniority was developed (laughs) like not a big fan of like the turnover every year and that there isn't deep administrative knowledge that's right it's the institutional knowledge yeah right yeah totally and it's kind of like when i think about it like if i was a justice and the people who were like 
literally writing the drafts of the main thing that I do, which is write opinions, and they had to change every year. That'd be pretty annoying. Like, what a, what a, like a... Well, I mean... A frustrating way to work, sort of. <laughs> you know, you can't get any stability. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's truly like a deep mentorship. Yes, yes. And I'm sure a lot of them love it, and, it, and it's very nice, and it's a very beautiful story about these deep relationships over time. That we'll never see, those deep stories. <laughs> but it's also, like, Rehnquist talks about how in the first few like weeks or months he's having to like dramatically rewrite everything these clerks are doing because they just don't know what they're doing and they need like a lot of help and a lot of effort has to go in in those early months to to get them on track to even understanding how the work is done and, well, and how it's supposed to be written that's a lot of the defense the defenses that they share around why there's such feet like feeder judges is because there's so much work that has to be done. They're wanting their clerks to be kind of ready on day one and kind of used to the rigor of kind of the work that they do. Right. And so that's supposedly part of the reason why there's now kind of this standard where people have done one or two clerkships before they even get to the Supreme Court, before there used to be a lot more straight from law school graduates who would clerk at the Supreme Court. You don't see that nearly as much anymore. I actually read this really interesting piece uh, by Sarah Isker, which we used to talk about in Polylog 1.0. But she talks about how women who want to study constitutional law are really challenged by this because if you are doing one or two clerkships after having done undergrad, after having done law school, then doing the Supreme Court, you're not getting to a law firm until really your early to mid 30s. And at that point, you want and if you want to become partner, you just have to work like crazy hours and it becomes a real challenge on having a family because, it, you know, it becomes harder to get pregnant. And so that is kind of another piece around gender representation of clerks, where it's just like it doesn't matter, like the rigor that is required makes it extremely difficult, not to mention the making extremely low wages for an extended period of time before you're able to make giant dollars in big law. Well, and like you say, the, the, the change to an assumption that someone's been a clerk for years before means that for years they've been making pretty bad wages or, you know, in comparison to their peers who didn't go into clerking. Right. Right. Yeah, and and just this, all this info about how they write their briefs, how the conference goes, it's it's eye-opening, and yet at the same time, it's so odd that this isn't common knowledge. I mean, it took you five minutes to to share that, and yet how many stories have have we progressively, like, collectively read over all the years about the Supreme Court? I think it was just these last few months, because even that is a lot. No, but it's like... People do, you know, people are watching on their VHS that one hour a year of Supreme Court coverage. There's not five minutes in there to, like, bring people up to speed on how the court just basically operates and what these terms like clerk even mean. That's just like you're not doing the job. So, Brendan, we talked about in the last pillar about how the court is so, you know, secretive. Where do you think journalists could even start in covering the court with more rigor if the court is so apprehensive of that kind of examination? It's a big question, actually. (laughs) 
in terms of like one place to start. I think one, you know, just to build on what I was just saying, I think one place to start is to lay the groundwork for your audience to understand the court a little better. And by maybe writing a few stories to to help people understand the court and having to find some way to make that feel newsy and meaningful could be really helpful because it could raise important questions, as you're saying, Naomi, about like the composition of the clerks and is that representative and who can we get to talk to about that? And I think that opens up like understanding and writing about the court's processes invites a lot of interesting questions and as you say naomi start with a question and you'll find a good story so yeah and i think the other thing around that is that it's really hard to have news stories about supreme court decisions differentiate from each other when i read the epa story from nina turnberg and robert barnes and adam Leptak, they like looked exactly word for word you could even tell i was listening to a scotus blog where the the reporter talks about how frustrating it is when they like it the headlines like practically are the same and this is a place to explore new stories and and to really explain to the american people you know whole facets of the court that are just completely unknown it seems like an exciting challenge not like a a wag the finger finger challenge yeah and what i would like to see and, you know, we'll be talking about this throughout the series, you know, what we'd like to see from the media on this and going deeper into into critical discussions. But what I would like to see is a news organization editorially standing up and saying, like the New York Times did with the 1619 Project, right, or, or a host of other projects, standing up and saying, listen, we are going to deeply cover this institution Maybe we're going to do it for five months, six months, three months. We're doing a series on the workings of the court, and that's what we're going to do, right? And this is what we're going to explore. I would love to see them stand up and say, no, this story about how the court works isn't a a, a story that ends up on page A12 or A16 of the paper or, you know, at the end of NBC Nightly News. This is a story at the start. We are deciding that this is important. And I think audiences are demanding more and more of that. They don't want their their New York Times to just reflect what yesterday's biggest headline was because they've already digested that digitally. They want it to be meaningful. They want it to stand up and say, hey, we understand the news and we're telling you this thing that other people aren't talking about all the time, this is important. Well, that's so interesting you mentioned the 1619 Project because, I mean, maybe it was part of the design all all along. I don't think so. But it is a huge source of revenue. It's There are books. There are kids' books. There are teacher mm, guides. For the there institution, are, right? There's a, there's a documentary. There's a podcast series. Like, there's so many ways that it could be made into new content that, yeah, it seems like this is like an area just like that. It could be very easy for a reporter at one of these institutions to say, what are you talking about? We have a How the Supreme Court Works uh, article that's published every year, you know, in October when, when things get started. And, you know, and it's like, okay, but where is that article? And of the people who see your other articles, like, do you think most of them have read that one back in October? I don't think so. I don't think it was on the front page, and I don't think it was 
top of mind for most of the readers of your Supreme Court coverage. And so I think it's a two-tiered process. I think there should be coverage that's driven by the process discussion. And I think there's also a need to better explain how the court operates in these major front page stories so people get it. Yeah. And I would say even those explainers are not nearly as robust as what we're talking about. Right. Well, that was our first episode of Polylog 2.0. We have so much more that we plan on sharing with you of what we learned and what we've observed about Supreme Court media coverage. We have tried our best to put it in like these thematic conversations because there is so much to say about media coverage about the Supreme Court. And we're, of course, standing on the shoulders of so many incredible writers, reporters, researchers out there whose work we have relied on to help inform this discussion and bring this information to you. And so for an exhaustive list of that sourcing, you can look to our show notes. Yeah, so we'll have a link to our research list and have those available to you on our website and it will be ongoing as more episodes are recorded. Thanks to our dedicated polylog listeners for hanging in there during our hiatus it didn't feel like a hiatus because this has been so much work but we appreciate you waiting for us yes exactly so as you said naomi this is the first in our supreme court season people can expect six to eight episodes we'll see how many we we're able to record or or fit this into frankly yeah uh and you can expect one every week for the next couple months for the next couple months that's it for polylog catch us next monday until then we are always welcome to your feedback you can email us at podcast at polylog.com you can follow me on twitter at bstitle you can follow me at sodonaomi underscore and you can always follow the show at polylogcast thanks everyone and we'll talk with you next week bye bye